Our second scripture passage is from the book of Romans, chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. Do you prefer an apple, a banana, or a sailboat? The difference between religion, secularism, and the gospel is that the gospel is different of another kind altogether. It is not comparing three fruits. It is two fruits and a sailboat. You see, tradition and religion say this. In order to make it, in order to be justified, in order to be okay, you've got to be morally good and perform the religious duties that are ascribed to you. All religions, every religion has a set of commands, things that you must do, offerings that you must give, fast and pray, pilgrimages you have to go on. Even in something like Buddhism that we think doesn't have rules, it's actually a series of rules. Four noble truths, five precepts, ten-fold path, 700 other circles you have to go through. Every religion, and that includes versions of Christianity that are moralistic, have a series of rules that you must perform, a code you must follow. The same is true in traditional societies, whether that's rural America, the ancient past, or in parts of the world today. There's a set of rules that must be followed in order for you to be justified. It's honoring your family or doing the culturally expected things to do. There's always a duty, a set of rules, things you must do. That's religion. Now, we often think of secularism as the opposite of that. Modern American secularism, which is basically America apart from faith, would say this, reject all external rules. Reject any traditions that are passed on or those that are given by a church or a religion, and instead, it's the way of self-discovery. What's right for you is all that matters. Find your own way. But the funny thing is, even in secularism, there's still a set of rules. 
You just make them up yourself. There's still standards you have to live up to. You might determine that it's certain achievements in your career or a certain outcome for your family or a certain bank account or a certain way that people perceive you. But whatever it is to get there, you're constantly trying to live up to either their tradition or their religion or your own set of standards. All religions, all cultures, all people seek to justify their own existence, to find their purpose and their worth on the basis of performance and doing something. And so we answer the question this way, are you a good person, basically a good person? Or why should God accept you? Or why should you go to heaven? In some version of my effort or my earnestness, my basic goodness or niceness, my achievements, my success, the happiness of people around me, some version of measuring up is what we're always doing. And the problem is with religion or secularism or any path we try to choose, we are never sure we've done enough. And that's why the gospel is altogether different, like a sailboat to an apple and a banana. Luther when he was studying Romans 1, 16 and 17, which we read today, had an epiphany. And his epiphany was this, the righteousness of God is alien righteousness. Basically, it goes like this. You and I try to earn our goodness, our rightness, our right standing before God on the basis of what we do. And what Luther saw in Romans 1, 16 and 17 is that the righteousness of God is a gift. It's alien to us, it's not in us. It's not on the basis of who we are or what we do. It's the gift of God because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. God in Christ fully accomplished everything. Our identity, our status, our worth, our purpose, our future, our justification is in Christ. You and I are accepted because of who Jesus is and what he did in his death on the cross not your effort or your earnestness or your performance. This week, and for the next seven weeks, we're looking at a new series called Beginning with Christ. Here's how it goes. In the second through fourth century, when you converted to Christianity, you spent months or up to two years being catechized. That's one of those funny words, catechized. They basically meant instructed. You had an instructor and you were an instructee, and they spent months or even years training you up in the faith before you were baptized. The reason for this was because they knew that it was a weighty thing to come to faith in Christ. You were probably going to be abandoned by your family, possibly lose your job, definitely your social standing, and you might even die for it. And they wanted to make sure before somebody was baptized, they understood what they were buying into. Catechisms, or series of questions and answers about basic Christianity, have been in existence for hundreds and hundreds of years. Recently, a couple of years ago, the Anglican Church came up with a new one called To Be a Christian. It's based on old catechisms. And it, it sounds really nerdy, but I liked it. As I read through it, I was like, this is actually really good. This is the sort of stuff that it's in question and answer form that gives instruction that whether you are trying to figure out whether you believe in Christianity or you've been a Christian for decades, you could go back to this and say, oh, I get it now. I, I see the basics of it. 
This is available online, or you can buy these. There's also like a PDF download of it. But for the next eight weeks, we're looking at the first portion called Beginning with Christ. And that's these handouts like this, and it has the question and answer in the middle of it. And basically, this is how to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. And some of you say, I've, I've done that. I've already been there. But my guess is not everybody in this room has. And so on one level, this is for you. If you're trying to figure it out, look into this stuff and see if this is what you believe. But also what I've found in several decades of following Jesus Christ is that we never get beyond the basic, the basic gospel message, God's love for us sinners. The root of everything, of growing in your faith, of understanding all that God offers you is the basic gospel. And what is that basic gospel? Well, the question and answer goes like this. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of God loving and saving lost mankind through the ministry and word and deed of his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is God loving and saving us through Jesus Christ. And we opened up Romans and read from it because actually Romans is a great descriptor of all the gospel essentials. Many people throughout the centuries have said, you want to know what Christianity is about? Go read the book of Romans. It's a letter Paul wrote in the first couple of decades of the first century to the Christians in Rome, and it was basically describing the gospel message, all you needed to know about Christianity in a few short chapters. From the very beginning, as he's addressing the audience, he explains the gospel. He says, look, I'm an apostle, a messenger of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the message of God in verse one. It was prophesied in the scriptures about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and it's the good news for everyone, for all the nations. Right from the beginning, he's saying, here's the gospel. And then he lays it out several times throughout the, the book of Romans in these very short verses, these passages that just lay it out very clearly. In Romans 3, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In Romans 5, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 6, the wage of sin is death. What we deserve is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. That's all you need to know whether you are trying to figure it out or you've been walking in this for decades. And in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the ending of our passage from Romans today, Paul gives it, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. Here's the gospel. You want to know the gospel? power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, and it's by faith. So, we're going to sum it all up, right? The gospel is this. It's God loving and saving us through the death of Jesus Christ, his son. And this is good news. It's what gospel means. It's good news. Think about that. If that's actually true, that's good news. So, my question then, 
even from this passage, is why does Paul talk about being not ashamed of the gospel? As several commentators point out, the only reason why you would say I'm not ashamed of something is if you were tempted to be ashamed of something. Or if at some point in the past he had been ashamed of the gospel. Or he realizes his audience that's reading the letter to Romans is probably ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. Well, to understand why you might be ashamed of the gospel, it's helpful to understand first century culture. Whether you were a Jew or a Greek or a Roman in that first century world, it was an honor and shame culture, right? We've talked about that here. Which basically meant your community standing, your name, your status in the community was of utmost importance. And public humiliation was your greatest fear. What is more shameful and degrading than crucifixion? Crucifixion was the ultimate loss of status. It was public humiliation. And it declared the person crucified is worthless. Only criminals and slaves were crucified. And when you were crucified, it was a torturous death where you were hung literally naked, possibly for days, on some of the most important roads in and out of a city. Imagine that. There you are on 123, on I-95, for everyone to see. In an honor and shame culture, it was total failure. To preach Christ, a Christ that's crucified, was completely unthinkable in that culture. No one would have bought into it. And it's why Paul, in one of his other letters, 1 Corinthians, says, the message of Christ crucified is foolishness to the Greeks, meaning the philosophers, the Greco-Roman philosophers, who have their wisdom and their paths to follow. The idea that your God is crucified made no sense. It was foolishness to the Greek philosophers. And it was a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because their salvation was in their religiousness, following the commandments, and their ethnicity. I'm Jewish. I'm the people of God. The gospel comes along, and it's not just Christ crucified. It's Christ crucified for everyone. Even the Gentiles get in. And it's by faith, not your goodness. It's Christ crucified for you. In every way, the message of Christ crucified was shameful. To the Jew, to the Greek, to an honor and shame culture, it made no sense. And we're not much different today. Many of us are embarrassed by the gospel. And this makes sense. We're not an honor and shame culture, but what are we? We're a merit-based society, right? You earned the things that you have. You've earned your paycheck. You've earned your place in that school. You've earned that, you've worked for that family. You've worked for your community relations. You've earned who you are. That's how we live. We're a merit-based society. When the gospel comes along and says, we are deeply sinful, so sinful that we cannot save ourselves. And the only way that we have salvation is by grace through faith, not because of what we do, this makes no sense to us. None of us, by nature, as Americans, view ourselves as inherently sinful, 
if we really want to be honest about it, because otherwise things would go worse in our life. Things are going pretty well, so I've earned it. How can you say I'm sinful, deeply flawed? And what do you mean anyone can get into this, this heaven thing, that it's by grace? Don't you have to be a good person too? It makes no sense. So we're embarrassed by it. Or we're probably actually even more embarrassed by the gospel because we are an individualistic society. And as individualists, we are relativists. We say everyone should be able to do what they want and make their own choice. But if you really read through the gospel message, what you find is that it says that we need to be saved from hell, from judgment. And that Jesus alone is the way to salvation. That's embarrassing. I don't want anyone to know that. How can you say that, that people who are basically nice are going to go to hell? How can you say Jesus is the only way? Lots of earnest people follow other paths. The honor-shame thing is not as hard for us. Jesus died on a cross. Okay, great. But you talk about challenging our individualism, and it throws everything up in the air. This is completely embarrassing, this gospel thing. And yet Paul wants to preach that gospel in Rome and wherever he goes. He is no longer ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because everything changed for him when he came to faith. In Philippians, another one of his letters, he explains, he explains to the Philippians how his values had been overturned by the gospel. He explains, look, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in his life, in his flesh, I have it. I have it more than any of you. And he basically goes on to describe the fact that he was a perfect Jew. He had every status thing you could possibly have in that ancient world. In our day and age, he would have been, you know, the, the Ivy League with the master's degree, a great career, influential in his field, making tons of money, great bank account, good house. His family was fantastic. His, his wife, his marriage was great. His kids were all doing really well. He ran triathlons and always was in the top in his age, volunteered with Little League Baseball, part of the PTA. He was a great guy. All the things that make you worthy, he had done them. And he says, but whatever gain I had in this culture, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I'm willing to lose all of it and count them as rubbish, as trash, as something to be flushed down the toilet. All my degrees, all my volunteerism, all the respect I have in the community, who cares? in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. The amazing grace of the gospel had made all status and honor and success and achievement useless to Paul. When the gospel takes hold and you experience the amazing love of God and the grace of Christ crucified for you, nothing else compares. Nothing else is as important. 
And if you're still mostly embarrassed by the gospel, by Christianity, it's possible that you're not looking to the gospel to fully give you your standing and your worth. I know that I wrestle with this when I think about parts of Christianity that are unpopular. I kind of want to hide them because when it comes down to it, I I don't want people to misunderstand me, and I'm afraid if they, if they hear me say something, they're gonna, I, and I don't have a chance to really fully explain it, they're going to jump to conclusions about what I actually am like, because Christianity has some truths that are unpopular in our culture, so I, I want to hide them, and I, I, I want people to accept me. I, I want to be approved. And when I'm thinking that way, when fear is driving me, it's usually because I'm not fully finding my identity in the gospel finding it in what other people might say. If you're still mostly embarrassed by Christianity, by the gospel, and I don't mean by Christians, by the gospel, it's possible you're not looking fully to the gospel to define you. Or you may not really know or believe the gospel yet. You have not experienced the power of the gospel So you're simply embarrassed by the Christian claims that don't really have a claim on you. But Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Paul had experienced the power of the gospel. It's what Luther talked about when he said, the gospel's power is that it is God's gospel, not man's. It is a gift from God. It's not something we do. When we put our faith in the good news of Jesus Christ, it changes everything. And Paul had experienced that powerful change. The gospel is the power that changes who we are, our identity, our standing, our future. It basically says this. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ crucified, you are pardoned. Everything you deserve has been paid in full. You are righteous and justified. And the best I could come up with for that is the difference between being undocumented in this country, having a temporary visa, you can be here to work or to visit, having a green card, meaning you could stay a little bit longer, and then maybe all of a sudden having a certificate of citizenship. Once you have that certificate of citizenship in your hands, you're an American citizen and everything changes legally for you. You cannot be deported. You have certain rights that are afforded citizens only. And that document, that declaration changes everything with regards to your status. When you put your faith in Christ, in the gospel, your citizenship status changes. You are now a citizen of the kingdom of God and that cannot ever be taken away. When you put your faith in Christ, it changes who you are. You are now righteous before God. It's something given, not achieved or deserved. And it's better than a presidential pardon. I had to Google this, so I may be wrong. But in a presidential pardon, you get removed from having to pay your time in jail, but you still have a criminal record. If I'm wrong on that, let's just go with it. But in Christianity, the pardon is this. Your crime is put on Jesus' record. 
Jesus' perfect record is attributed to you. That's what happens when you put your faith in Christ. So what does it look like from my perspective? I'm sinful. I fall. I fail. But in God's view, I am right, righteous, holy. When God looks at me, he sees Jesus because that's who I have put my faith in. When God looks at me, he sees Jesus. Faith in the gospel changes everything for me. It changes my status before God and restores my relationship to God. You know, all of us are made for love, and we're aware of that. We are constantly seeking, looking for, longing for love. We seek it in our friendships. We want people to approve and like us. We want friends who who are committed to us. We seek it in romance, whether that's in marriage or dating or wishing we were dating or wishing we were married or being disappointed in our marriage or our dating relationships. We're looking for romance. We seek it in our culture today and have for a few decades in self-esteem. I need to love myself. I think of one friend of mine who's such a loyal friend to everyone. Dozens and dozens of people would say, oh, he's my best friend. And yet in the midst of it, I could see his clamoring to be loved, his desperate desire to be loved. We're all like that on some level. And the gospel tells us only when we have been restored and righted to the God who made us will our bottomless need for love be filled. The gospel changes who you are, and it changes you. The gospel also changes you. When you let the message of the gospel sink deeply, it changes you. We've said this before here. The gospel basically says this. You and I are more sinful than we are able to see or willing to admit And at the same time, we are more loved by God through Jesus Christ than we dare to imagine. More sinful than we're willing to admit, more loved than we're able to imagine. When you let that sink in, it changes you. It's changing me, my values, my motives, my goals, how I respond to life. See, that gospel message assures us and frees us Richard Lovelace, in the book Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, warns Christians about finding their identity on the basis of their goodness rather than on the gospel. He says, below the surface, many Christians are guilt-ridden and insecure and draw the assurance of their acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past conversion, their recent religious performance, or their avoidance of observable sins. In other words, we, we base how we feel about ourselves on how we're doing Few of us start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform. You are accepted, completely trusting in the work of Christ as the only grounds for our acceptance. The root of so much of our judgmentalness or our defensiveness, always trying to prove ourselves, our pride, our clamoring to be noticed, our striving for achievement, so much of the root of that is that we are unsure that we are accepted and loved and okay. 
when you are fully assured of your acceptance before God, you're free. I find myself not striving so much and able to love and forgive much easier. At its root, the gospel message, that basic gospel message, removes anxiety and striving and neediness. Tim Keller, in Gospel in Life, which we use as a study for becoming a member here at Christ Church Vienna, suggests this is the effects of the gospel. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding and identity, and our view of the world. It changes our hearts. The gospel, if it is really believed, removes neediness. The need to be constantly respected, the need to be constantly appreciated, the need to be constantly well regarded, the need to have everything in your life go well, the need to have the power over others. See, really grasping that we are more sinful than we're willing to admit, more love than we can dare to imagine, overturns all other priorities. So even if I'm successful, I don't have, need to have pride in that anymore. That's not my greatest achievement. The greatest achievement has been achieved for me. And I'm also not crushed when I struggle or I fail because God's love and acceptance of me overcomes all of it. I'm finally free. The gospel is powerful. It is powerfully polarizing as well. It will either draw you or repel you. When Sarah and I were first married, we visited my grandparents in western Pennsylvania, and when we walked into the building, the house, Sarah wondered what that smell of death was. I told her that was dinner. <laughs> See, in a Czechoslovakian culture, one of the famous meals is halupki, or cabbage rolls. I just knew it as family food. My dad and his siblings thought of it as life. The scent of cabbage rolls was there every Sunday when they got back from church. It was the scent of family, the scent of community, the scent of a full table. It was the scent of all their good memories. But to somebody who was new to that, it was death. The scent of cooking cabbage all day Eventually, she decided she liked the taste of them, but still didn't like the smell of them. See, the gospel has the same effect. It is either the scent of death or it is the scent of life. It is either an aroma that draws you in and you need more of it or you want nothing to do with that ever again. No one was ever indifferent to Jesus. Every person who met him was either drawn to him, wanted to be with him, and wanted to worship him, or they wanted nothing to do with him. They feared him, and they wanted to kill him. If you are indifferent to the gospel, you've probably never really heard it. Now, I don't mean you haven't heard somebody say it. You haven't actually heard it. Or you've never understood what it is saying to you. Because once you have actually heard the gospel, you will either reject it and never want anything to do with this, you'll never come back, or you'll want more and more. You'll embrace it and never want to leave.
gospel is powerful, but it is a power to be experienced. And it brings joy and freedom and peace because it is a good news of God loving and saving us through Jesus Christ, his son. Let's pray. God, we talk week in and week out here about the gospel, the basic good news that Jesus Christ is crucified for us. God loves us and has saved us through his son. But sometimes we are hard to believe that and apply it in our lives. Some of us have heard it so many times that we gloss over it. Lord, let this be to us the scent of life the aroma of joy. Give us the faith to put our trust in what you have done. In your name we pray, amen. Should I gain from his reach?